Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you here this morning. Our key scripture this morning comes from Psalm 20. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open up to Psalm 20. And I'll be reading it for you here this morning. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. There are a lot of words that have been used to describe me over the years. I don't see what's funny about that. <laughs> Devastatingly handsome. Overwhelmingly intelligent. Aloof. <laughs> but one of the things that has never been used to describe me is, um, what is the word I'm looking for? <clears throat> Outwardly joyful. <laughs> Expressive even. I don't know that that word has been used for me either. And there's a reason why I think uh, I have never been described in those terms. And that's because a lot of times in my life, I have spent my time worrying and trying to keep things under control. I have spent time uh, trying to fix whatever's wrong. I have spent time trying to make uh, the next right decision. I have spent time trying to help people make their next right decision. I have spent time making all the wrong decisions after I've done that. I have spent a lot of time worrying. And this morning when I woke up, I had a simple thought come to my head. And that was, Bryce, why aren't you happier? Why aren't you happier? These burdens that I carry with me all the time and that continue to weigh on me and bring me down, those burdens that I carry really honestly are nothing compared to the power of our God to deliver me from those things. The passage we just read is something that they proclaimed over their king before they were going to battle. It was a cry out to God that God would give their king victory and all that he did as he led them out that they would find that the Lord is with them. And if there is one thing that the story has told us time and time again, it is this. When God's people call out to him and trust him, he is there. Every time. Without fail. You can trust in other things. And these other armies, they could trust in all of their horses and their chariots and everything that they could bring to the table. But the problem is those other things that they thought gave them strength were destined to fall. While the people of God would rise up and stand firm on the power of their God who overcomes for them. And how many times have we seen the people of God in the story trust in God and then have to do absolutely nothing in order to succeed? Because God succeeds for them. This doesn't make what I worry about go away. And it doesn't necessarily make the burden any lighter on me. But perhaps I need a reminder just like you might need a reminder this morning. You can trust in a lot of things. 
But there is nothing like our God. And if you put your trust in Him, He will not fail you. And the greatest miracle of all is that through Jesus Christ, God takes our brokenness, the things that are wrong with us, and He turns them into something different and even beautiful. Praise God for the redemptive work of Jesus in our lives that allows me to say any of this to you this morning. So this is a special morning. You didn't know how special it was when you got up today. Uh, But Daphne is co-preaching with me today. Or I am co-preaching with Daphne, however it should be. Um, so she, I asked her to join me today as we look at the book of Esther. Um, so uh, I want to first start out by just covering a little bit of the ground, uh, some of the places we've been, and, and bringing, bringing us all up to speed. Make sure we understand what's going on as we get into the book of Esther. Uh, so as, as we've seen over the past several weeks, uh, the people of Israel were uh, a people that were without a home. The nation was divided. Uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, went away a long time ago. They were scattered to the wind. Uh, and Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, were led off into Babylon, and that's where they lived, in Babylon and Assyria. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, the temple of God was destroyed. The wall was torn down. All these different things happened there uh, for the people of Judah. And for all intents and purposes, they were a people without a home and without a land. And then uh, we saw a couple of things happen. So we looked at the story of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, um, people are living in captivity, but they're learning how to live out their faith there. And we see that God is faithful to them. And in fact, Daniel and his cohorts, they, they, have an, they make an impression on the people and on the king, and, and they speak for God into those places. But not everyone had those kinds of experiences. Uh, last week we got to look at the book of Ezra, and in the book of Ezra, Cyrus, king of Persia, decided through the work of God in his heart that he wanted to send a group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And it was, it's, it was a crazy story. If, you're, if you were here last week, if not, you need to go back and take a look at it because it's such, it's an amazing story. God set the table for them so well. He spoke to the Persian king. It ended up that they had all that they needed supplied for them and everything was funded by their neighbors and by the Persian empire so that they were able to go back and build a temple for God. It's such an incredible story how God did that for them. But there were still uh, Israelites that were living in Babylon who had not yet returned. And the question might be, okay, so why didn't they return? And what was the state of things uh, for them? So we're not, we're not necessarily, necessarily sure um, how the first group was chosen to go back. We just know that they were chosen to go back. And the people that are left behind, they're in various stages of of life there. So some of them have married in with, they have Assyrian wives, uh, they have jobs, they're doing different things there. And if you remember from last week in the book of Ezra, Cyrus is the king who makes this proclamation that they should go back. But just a couple of generations later, Darius the king, he doesn't remember everything that Cyrus said. So he has to go back and he reads the letters and this is what helps him you know, send more funding and more help to the Israelites who are trying to be real to rebuild the temple. By the time we pick up the book of Esther, it is sometime after the temple was rebuilt and the people are still living in Babylon and they have assimilated, as I said, into the culture. They have jobs there. They're doing all these different things. And it's not really clear how safe it is to be an Israelite in Babylon at this time. You know, when Cyrus was king, he sent them back, he blessed them, he served God. But at this time, people are living more under the radar. It wasn't, it wasn't really safe for them to say that they were, that they were Jews and that they worshiped God. At the time of the story of Esther, there is a king named Xerxes, who was the ruler of Persia, and he was married to a woman named Vashti. Xerxes and Vashti. That's great, right? It's a, it rolls off the tongue. And, and here is the setting 
uh, for the story. So the Israelites are living in Babylon. They haven't yet returned. They're a part of the society, and they're keeping their Jewishness undercover. And so basically what happens is it's not a problem to be Jewish until it becomes a problem. And the main time that we've seen it become a problem, particularly if you look back to the book of Daniel, is when their worship of God comes in conflict with what the king has asked them to do. So if the king declares that he should be worshipped in a certain way, then the followers of God have to decide, am I going to worship the king or am I going to worship God? In Daniel's case, he stood up and worshipped God and was rewarded for it. But everyone's living under the radar. So King uh, Xerxes is, living, uh, is married to Vashti, and he decided to have a party to celebrate his great and enormous wealth. Um, it's a big party. Uh, he invites all of his nobles to come, and the first part of the party lasts 180 days. That's, yeah, well, so he had great wealth. He celebrated it. He spread it around. So they have 180 days of celebrating this thing. And then it came down to the last week. So he decided for the last week of this thing, he was going to throw the party to end the party. So he and all of his friends, uh, they start drinking on day one. And seven days later, they're still drinking. And they've been having a really good time. And here's what happens. On day seven, after they've been drinking and partying all this time, Xerxes decides he wants his wife Vashti to come to the party, because this is really just for the men, folk. He wants Vashti to come to the party so that he can kind of show her to everyone so they can see how beautiful and wonderful she is. Vashti gets the summons, and guess what she says? No. She didn't want to go to this you know, drunken, crazy place just to parade around. And the word comes back to Xerxes that she said no, and Xerxes is kind of upset about it. And so he asks all of his friends there what he should do about the fact that Vashti said she wouldn't come uh, and, and parade around here. So he says, according to the law, what must we do to Queen Vashti? She has not obeyed the command of the king, so what do we do? So his friends replied in the presence of the kings of nobles, and this is what they said. Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Midian women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. By the way, in case you didn't know this, men are insecure. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Okay, so this tells us a little bit about the culture in which Esther is living. Um, to say that it is patriarchal would maybe be a little bit of an understatement, considering that Vashti is used as a national example that all women should obey their husbands and that all men are in charge. Why? Because I said I am. That's why I'm in charge. So women in that society were not highly regarded, and it's put into law that they are underneath all of the men in their lives. And then you have, again, the Jews who are living in exile who are under this king who is able to make these kinds of grand statements. Now, this is where Esther enters the story. Esther was raised by a man named Mordecai who was brought over uh, by King Nebuchadnezzar way back when. So he's been living in the area, and she was actually his niece. Uh, her parents were both gone, and so Mordecai was taking care of Esther and raising her. And she was beautiful and lovely, and um, because of that, this weird thing happened. So, so stick with me here. The king now had an opening for queen, and they decided that the best way to fill the role of queen was to have all the beautiful women in the area brought to his palace to be a part of his harem. 
And so there was this huge pool of women that were still virgins that were brought to the palace and were kept there by eunuchs because that was safe for them, I suppose. And they prepared them to at some point enter into the presence of the king for the king to decide whatever it is he's going to decide to do with them. And Esther was brought into this group. And she was brought into this group and watched over by a eunuch within the palace. So here's where we pick up her story. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing order, nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Keep talking. Steve? (laughs) Esther's story, the story of a beautiful young girl pulled into a world of political power and intrigue, captivates us. Who was Esther? We can start with her three names. Like I was saying in the children's um, sermon up here, names have power. They have significance. Um, A little later in history, and not really in history, Juliet, the heroine of another captivating story, tried to deny the power of names. She said a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Despite this, uh, her fate and Romeo's fate were sealed by their names by their identity as Montague and Capulet. So in the Bible, we saw that Jacob's name was descriptive. It had power. He was the one who grasped the heel. He ended up living by deception. And then he was given a new name and a new role and became a leader for God, as his name Israel suggested. He was given a new identity with that name. If names have this descriptive or prophetic power, what do our heroine's three names tell us about her true identity? Her given name, Hadassah, means myrtle tree, and it also means springs up quickly, and we'll see this play out later. The name that she's called most often in the story, Esther, is really interesting because it's a Persian name that means star or fortune. And being a Persian name... It, um, it's sort of like our idea of luck or fortune that kind of X's God out of the equation. So we'll see that too. But the third name that we're given is actually a name that Bryce read, the name of her father, Abihail. And Abihail means father of the valiant. This word, Hail is the word that is used to describe the Proverbs 31 woman. It's the word that's used to describe Ruth. And it's a word that is used to describe many... um, Is that better? Can you hear me? It's a word that's... Is that better? Okay. So this word, Chayel, is a word that's used to describe many mighty warriors for God. So we know that somewhere deep in Esther's created identity, she is meant to be valiant, valiant, virtuous, and courageous. What else do we know about her? Well, we know that she is fortunate. She found favor right away with Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She found favor with King Xerxes. So, This name is already over her life. And we know that she was raised by Mordecai to know the God of Israel. We see this evidence in Mordecai's life, in his words, and in Esther's later actions. But we also know directly from the story that Mordecai tells her not to show out this identity, but to keep it hidden. 
And here it is hidden under this Persian name. Her identity is hidden. And she's living as a deferential young woman in a world that is controlled by strong men. How far was she prepared to go to keep her identity as a child of God hidden? Well, we know that she obeyed this king's command to go into his harem. And we know that the preparation there was for a distinctly non-Israelite union. But we don't know exactly how far she would go to keep her name hidden. All right, so now I have to explain to you what I'm going to call men behaving even more poorly. I know it's hard to believe that that could still happen, but we have a sideline that happens in the story of Esther. And the sideline takes place between two different people, Mordecai, who raised her, and a man named Haman. And there's this thing that happens, uh, which actually becomes very important to the story. Uh, During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the the two officials will be were I'm sorry the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Now, there's this man named Haman, and he was one of the wealthiest nobles in the area, and Xerxes liked Haman, so he decided to elevate Haman to a place of great honor. And so he sent a decree out everywhere that Haman was like the best of the best. This is my guy. This is my dude. And so anytime anyone saw Haman, they were supposed to bow to him as if he were the king. So, Haman is going through the gate where Mordecai was sitting, and guess what Mordecai did not do? He did not bow to Haman. And Haman noticed this. And this kind of got under his skin that Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. So he asked, who is this guy that's not bowing to me? That's Mordecai. He's a Jew. And he says, oh, he's a Jew. And, and Haman is such a quality individual that he decides it wouldn't be enough to punish Mordecai. I mean, I could just kill him, but I'm not going to. We are going to kill all the Jews because this guy wouldn't bow down to me. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, he went into his presence, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took a signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the, the Agagite the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to, listen to this, destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Okay. Understand what's happening here. The king has said to Haman, you can do whatever you want. And what did Haman decide? He decided to declare open season on one day on every Jew possible. And the Jews are not allowed to defend themselves. So on this one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, they can go and they can kill, annihilate, doesn't matter, women, children, and whatever you want to take is yours. They can do whatever they wanted. 
So Mordecai hears about this, that this is what's going on. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her and offered and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So Havok went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. They will be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Mordecai is asking Esther, to courageously live out her Jewish identity at great personal risk. It's pretty easy to say that we wouldn't hesitate to step out. We know how the story goes. But can we really know? Last year, during the um, fires that spread all over this county, there were a number of people who went back to their homes after they were evacuated. And a lot of us would say, that's pretty stupid. I mean, one little shift of the wind, and they could be completely wiped out. I want to tell you about one of those people, um, Pete, the uh, head of maintenance at Rincon Valley Christian School. He was evacuating with his wife and felt a great peace from God and a strong direction that he needed to go back. And so he went back. Rincon Valley Christian School was surrounded by fire on three sides. And the wind could have shifted at any time and could have wiped him out. In fact, fire did jump the fence into the maintenance yard near the propane tank. Pete was there fighting fires with a hose, with fire extinguishers, And just him, he probably couldn't have done it himself. And here's what God did. God brought some looters to our campus, three young men in black hoodies with backpacks, looking for whatever they could get. And Pete saw them and said, what are you doing here? And they said, "Uh, uh, uh, we're, we're here to help. And he said, good. And he put them to work and they helped. And Rincon Valley Christian School was saved. Now, I'm not saying that everybody should run into a fire, but I am saying when we trust in God, God works in surprising ways to provide for our needs. I'm also pointing out that the risks were real. Esther, in order to do what her uncle was asking, 
would have to risk death pretty much three different ways. Okay, she hadn't been called into the king's presence in 30 days. And she knew Vashti's story. Everybody knew Vashti's story. Vashti um, said no to an unreasonable request. And she was banished from the king's presence forever. For Esther to go into the king's presence without being called in was a direct violation of the law. And the punishment was death. The king could pardon her, could extend the scepter, but there was certainly no guarantee of that. Not only that, she would have to question the king's decree. When the king gave Haman his signet ring and that decree went out, that was the king's decree. And she was going to question the king about that. And third, she was going to come out as a Jew. She'd been hiding her identity as a child of the God of Israel And she was going to declare that that's who she was in a time when an ordinance had just been passed that all of these people were going to be killed, annihilated. It was even more risky for Esther as a person because she was distinctly unprepared for this challenge. She had been trained her whole life to live deferentially, to obey the men in her life. She obeyed Mordecai. She immediately went in and transferred that deference to Haggai the eunuch over the harem. That's how she found favor. That's why she only took into the king what Haggai recommended. And then she transferred that deference, that obedience to the king himself. She also had zero experience asserting herself in any way. And no experience openly living her faith. I think her choice shows that her faith was real and deep. But the only training that she had in faith itself was this internal reliance on God and a knowledge of who God is. And Mordecai reminded her of who God was. He said, deliverance is going to come. God is a deliverer. So this, this training in faith, it was enough. Five centuries before Paul would hear God say, my grace is sufficient. God gave Esther the same mes- message with his actions. Esther saw the dangers. She said, if I perish, I perish. But she chose in the face of those perils to trust the God who delivers and to step into her identity. She relied on God. She aligned herself with the people of God, and she reached out to them for support. She fasted. Hadassah sprung up quickly into openly claiming and worshiping the God of Israel in this public act of worship. So she fasted, everyone fasted, and she decided she had to do something about it, right? So she goes to um, the courtyard outside of the throne room and kind of just stands there, waiting to make eye contact with Xerxes. Xerxes sees her and has her summoned in, and as she comes in, he lowers his scepter, and she kisses it, and now she's allowed to be there. And then, this is remarkable, he says to her, just out of the blue, what do you want? You can have up to half of my kingdom. What would you like? So what does she ask for? Can I make you dinner? Well, sure. And she says, make sure, make sure Haman is there. So they have dinner and it goes great. It's this huge party and when it's all over, she approaches Xerxes again. He lowers his scepter. She comes in. What do you want? I'll give you anything you want, up to half of my kingdom. He said, she said, can I make you another dinner? Uh, and this time, I just want you and Haman to come. And he's like, sure. And Haman's like, yeah, I am in with a king queen like this. So I call this next part of the story, who is actually in charge? 
Haman goes home, and calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman said. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction. As long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. This must be a thing at the time. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. You'll have Mordecai impaled over here. You can eat in peace. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. That night the king couldn't sleep, so he ordered the books of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing's been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who's in the court? Who's out there right now? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendant says, oh, Haman is out in the court. Well, bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. It's a parade in this person's honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. As we have seen throughout the story, this is God's story. It does not matter that God's name is never even mentioned in the book of Esther. God's fingerprints are all over it. Before Esther steps one foot into the king's chamber, God keeps Xerxes awake at night. God brings just the right passage from the Chronicles to his attention. God puts Haman in the outer passage at just the right moment. In one efficient stroke, God protects Mordecai and humbles Haman. King Solomon once observed, there is nothing new under the sun. And here we see a cycle that we've seen a lot. God's people are threatened. God's people rely on God. They cry out to him. And God rescues his people. It is nothing new to see God working behind the scenes. It is nonetheless remarkable how perfectly he sets the table for what is to come. So Haman's had a bad day. I call this last part of the story, you got played. He goes back home. He's all upset about it. You know, he's erected this pole in his front yard to impale Mordecai on. And now he's just sitting there. And he had to lead him through the city on this horse and proclaim all these things about him. But at least it was time for Esther's banquet. And he was still the only person invited to the banquet with the king. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, 
If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man that has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, An adversary and enemy, the vile Haman. Now picture Haman's face at the table with just a few of them there. Then Haman was terrified, yeah he was, before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, (laughs) sorry, this part's so funny to me, but Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, Hey, I saw something. A pole reaching to I have 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. What happens to the enemy of God's people? Just think about that for a second. The problem was this law had already been sent out. And it could not be repealed. It was part of the language of the very law itself that this was going to happen on the 13th day of the 12th month, that everyone could attack the Jews wherever they were, kill them, annihilate them, and take what they want. So the king can't just say, this is not going to happen. So things were changed a little bit. The decree still stood, but there was an amendment that was made that was again sent out to everyone to see and to hear. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. So what what happened was, King Xerxes gave the Jews the authority to defend themselves in any way they wanted to. So now, the enemies of the Jews couldn't just come in and kill and take. The Jews were allowed to stand up for themselves. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai, who was now second in command, had seized fear of them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. But there was one more thing that Esther asked for. If it pleases the king, Esther answered to the request, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. So get what happened. On the 13th day, they wiped everybody out, particularly outside the, the, the capital of Suda. 
But Esther asked for an extra day, and guess who didn't have an extra day? Everyone who was going to attack the Jews. They had the 13th. Esther asked for the 13th, and then the 14th. And on the 14th, what can the Jews go and do? Wipe out anyone who's left that wants to stand against them. Hadassah has certainly lived after her name. She sprung up quickly into her full identity as a child of the God of Israel. She is a woman empowered by God to be chayil, to be courageous, valiant, and virtuous. God called her into a role that he has given to many others in the history of his people, like Deborah the judge, Queen Hadassah Esther Chayil, led the people in worship when she called for a three-day fast, and led the people to a decisive victory over their enemies when she asked for that second day. Okay, so what do we learn from this story? What do we learn? We're seeing the same thing that we've seen lots of times. Who is writing the story? God is writing the story. And there are a couple of interesting things that happen. Number one, there is the assertion that men are in charge, men specifically. And um, that proves not to be very true. Because in the end, who is the main influencer of what happens? A woman is. Esther. But here's something that is truly remarkable that we need to wrap our minds around. King Xerxes, going along with all this, is now the third Persian king to follow in the plan of God. Think about that for a second. Cyrus, Darius, and Xerxes all honor God by what they're doing. Some of them know they're doing it, some of them don't. But they follow the direction of God, which is a remarkable thing. But there's this moment that we need to think about a little bit. It's the, it's the saying we always talk about when we come to the book of Esther. Maybe you were put into this place for such a time as this. Esther did not know who God made her to be. She might have known what her names meant, but she didn't know who God had made her to be. And she was living out this quiet faith in a foreign land in these situations that we can hardly wrap our minds on, our minds around. But when she was given the opportunity to do something on behalf of her people, what did she choose to do? She chose to act in faith. I don't know how you feel about Mordecai's words, but they don't sit really well with me. Because he has put her in this position. He has told her to hide her faith her whole life. Now she's in the service of King Xerxes. And what does he tell her? He says, if you don't do this, fine. Someone else will. And your family will be written out of the books. You will be cut off. But here's something that's, that we need to wrap our minds around here. She decides anyway to do things that a day previously would have seemed impossible to her. And here's the thing. It's not until she steps into that space that she becomes who God wanted for her to be. I mean, she was faithful before. She knew God before. She honored God before. But it was not until she was called to become a spokesman of the people and she stepped into that role that she became the one who shoots up quickly and speaks for her people. Can your faith be real if you are not living it out? It's something that has gone around and around in the New Testament. But here's something I want us to see. Your faith is not necessarily fake. 
if you aren't getting these huge moments to demonstrate your faith. However, your faith in God becomes real when you have to step into something unknown and speak up for him. Your faith in God becomes real when you have to step out into something unknown and speak up for him to the king of the land. She could not have done what she did without a deep faith in God. But you need to know, she also didn't understand how this was going to go. If I die, I die. But she steps out for God. And what happens when people step out for God? God is faithful. What happens when people step out for God? God is faithful. You should be saying this with me. What happens when people step out for God? God is faithful every time. And that, for today, is our story. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that though we may not see how things go, that though we may not understand how things are going to work, that you respond to us when we step out into the unknown. God, maybe we live a quiet life of faith like Esther did. But I pray, Father, that we will see the opportunity to step out into faith, to step out into the unknown, and God may remember, though it is unknown, the one thing we are sure of is that you are there. And that when we call on your name, you will come. And that you will respond to our faithfulness every time. Father, we see from this side of the Esther story that she had nothing to be afraid of. For you were always going to be there. And though God the unknown puts fear in our hearts, may we have that same confidence to know that you will always be there when we trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you and is on your side, we invite you to come as we stand and sing this song together.